Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's the reason for our celebration today. Because in Jesus, God has shown the world that death has been defeated and life will have the final word. So if you've ever wondered what Christianity is supposed to be about, it's about life. It's about life. It's not about some kind of a system that helps us become better people, good people, or better than the rest of the world. But it's about life. Christianity is about Jesus defeating death and giving us life. Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. You see, the one who defeats death has power over everything, has ultimate power over everything. The rulers of Jesus' day as well as the rulers of our day can only threaten death. And we see that going on in our world today. The one who has the most ability to threaten with the most death supposedly has the most power in the world. But there's one who has defeated death itself and he has demonstrated that he has the ultimate power over everything. He is the Christ. He is the Lord of all. He is the world's true king. So in raising Jesus from death, it was God's way of vindicating Jesus before the entire world as the world's true king, the Christ, the Lord of all. In raising Jesus from death, God announced to the world that death will not have the final word in his good creation. But death is still a reality. And the grace community in the last 72 hours has been rocked by a family who has experienced great tragedy of their 19-year-old son in an accident, auto accident. And many people have sat with them as they sit in the valley of the shadow of death. And many of you have come out of a year in which perhaps you have had some form of death that you've experienced. Not necessarily physical death, but maybe the death of a marriage, the death of a relationship, the betrayal you've experienced, the loss of friends, the loss of family members because of something. And so death is still a reality. And as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus and we talk about life, we are not denying the reality of death. We're not pretending as if it does not exist. But the resurrection is our hope in the midst of the reality of death. And so Jesus' victory over death has also paved the way for our victory over death, our bodily resurrection. In that great Pauline passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul argues that point. And he basically is saying that when we're joined to Jesus by faith, by trust, by believing allegiance, then you don't have to live in fear of death. Why? Because just as Jesus was raised to new life, and He is alive, right? He has been raised to new life. He is alive today. So we too will be raised to new life, Paul tells us. And that's why Paul breaks out in great celebration at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. And he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's victory in, in Jesus. But we also live in the reality of our culture. And our culture is a culture that is marked by valuing personal autonomy and the pursuit of individualism. And so it's easy to hear these words primarily through the filter of what does this mean for me? In other words, it's easy to hear this good news primarily as good news for me, that, the, that Jesus' victory means that, that there's good news for me and that I can experience new life now and I can experience life after death in the future. And while that's true... 
There's more that God intended than just our own personal experience of this good news. God has bigger plans. And Jesus' resurrection makes possible God's big plans for the world. Jesus' resurrection makes, God's, makes possible God's big plans for the world. And those plans include me and you and us. So to see God's plans for the world, I'm just up here for a few minutes, but I want to point your, yourself, point your eyes to a text. So if you want to turn to John 17, if you have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat. It's page 903 in John 17, just for a few minutes to look at the text. To see God's big plans for the world that include us, but it's bigger than just our own individual lives, Jesus offers some words in John 17. He's praying, and we're picking up in the middle of this prayer in verse 20. The words are behind me on the screen if you don't have access to a Bible. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, he's speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. A little bit of background. Jesus, on the night before he experiences a very brutal execution at the hands of the Roman government, he's spending time with his disciples, who he calls his friends, And he's spending time in prayer. And he prays not only for them, but he prays for everyone who would believe their testimony about him. In verses 20 to 26, we get to eavesdrop on a great planning session between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the scope of this planning session is to benefit the entire world from the first coming of Jesus to his return. So it's not just for a few local churches, but it's for the whole body of Christ everywhere throughout time. Having looked at these words, what is the objective that Jesus has in mind? Well, you look at verse 21 and 23, it says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Here's the word, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he repeats that in verse 23, so that the world may know that you have sent me. See, God's plan is not simply for us. It's for the whole world. See, the church is here. God's people are here so that the world might be convinced that Jesus, that Jesus is God's authentic representative, that he is God's authoritative voice to humanity. Jesus is a revelation of what God wants to do in humanity as a whole. That's why Paul calls him the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Jesus is what God intended for humanity to be all along. So when we look at Jesus, we see 
we see a, a human being in right relationship to, the God, to God, in right relationship to himself, to others, and to the world. We see what humanity was intended to be. Jesus is not some Greek idealized figure. He is God's image, and he is what we are to be as people made in the image of God. Jesus is God's representative. He is the key to world history and to reality. And so our task is not to save the world. It's to bring awareness of who Jesus is. And as that happens, then people around us have a choice to make. They can either turn to Jesus in believing allegiance, and they can experience the life that he offers, or they can turn from him, they can remain in their autonomy and reject the source of life. But every one of us has a question that we have to deal with in life, and everyone around us has a question, and that question is, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? So if that's God's objective, God's big plan for the world, then what's his strategy? He doesn't just say, well, here's my plan. You guys go try to figure out a way to make this happen. He brings us into this as well, and again in verses 21 and 23, he talks about that they may be perfectly one. That they may be perfectly one. He's talking about unity. Now, what's that? Now, we happen to have two churches here today. Is that what Jesus had in mind? If we could just get churches meeting together on Easter Sunday, and the pastors will all show up and wear ties and decide on what color shirts they're wearing together. You guys are wearing green. We're wearing white today. It's team green versus team. That's not what he had in mind at all. It's not about churches coming together. It's not reducing all the the divisions that are in the world and everybody believing the same thing and not having any differences in our beliefs. That's not what Jesus had in mind. When he talks about unity here, he's talking about the sharing of life. The unity that Jesus describes is the sharing of life, and that's in verses 21 and 23. So it's not about having correct doctrine. It's not about having correct beliefs. It's about sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus. So here's my summary right behind me. The divine strategy by which God intends to bring the world to an awareness that the resurrection Jesus is the world's true king, that he is Lord of all, is to create in the midst of the world a family united by a shared life, which is the resurrection life of Jesus. And this life is to be so unmistakable so marked by joy, by life, by warmth, by love, that the world that is starving for meaningful relationships will see this and will envy it and will desire to get in on the love that is found within the circle of the family of God. In other words, as this unity of shared life is made tangible and visible through our love for one another, and he talks about that in chapter 17, then those outside the family of God will see it and they will want to get in on it. I want to finish with a story of a friend of mine who writes of her experience in this community that bears witness to those words that I just gave to you. She writes to me, When I first came to a Sunday service at Grace, it was a very uncomfortable feeling. It was a feeling of doubt, apprehension, some anger, and overall fear. Those feelings were based on what I have experienced all of my life as an outsider to Christianity as a whole. 
During a few of those not-so-pleasant experiences outside Christianity and the church, I kept thinking, wow, that's so Christian of you, or them, etc. I had no basis for the comment, as I was not raised with any religious background. But something told me deep in my heart this wasn't the way it's supposed to be. Christians were supposed to be kind, loving, non-judgmental, gracious people. In hindsight, I know that sense of deep knowing was God telling me the truth about Christianity. Jesus came into my life despite my best efforts to avoid Him, God, and all that comes with the deal. (laughs) Giving my life to Jesus was a personal step for me. I realized it was not a condition to be included in this community. The community of grace loved me long before I took that step. My journey at grace started with being accepted and loved for who I am. I was shown what a family of Christ followers really looks like. My witnessing of your own family walking with Jesus and sharing that walk with me in a kind, loving, and joyful way made my choice easy. To be accepted and loved without conditions was the most honoring feeling I have ever experienced. My own family experience wasn't the greatest. However, I'm eternally grateful for Jesus not letting me walk away from this grace family. Overall, I've had a good life, and on the outside, all is well. But you and your family and my new Christ family has allowed a restful, peaceful place to open inside of my heart. So thank you for that. And thanks be to God.